Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the 28-year-old Democrat who came out of nowhere to upset 10-term incumbent Joseph Crowley in New York City's boroughs of Queens and Bronx, is headed to Michigan to stump for a young progressive Democrat. On July 28th and 29th, she is expected to stop in Grand Rapids, Flint, Detroit, and elsewhere to lend her national spotlight to Abdul El Sayed, a 33-year-old progressive candidate for governor. Matt Uris for CBSDetroit.com. El Sayed understands something very profound. It's ordinary people coming together in the struggle for economic, social, racial, and environmental justice. And I am running because I, like you, like all of us, we are done waiting. We are done waiting while we watch a small family create a corporate pipeline that's devastated our public schools. Our kids deserve public schools that dignify their brains. We will make that happen in the state of Michigan. We're done waiting while they're telling us that they're going to get to the problem in Flint, that someday those kids will be able to trust the water that comes out of their tap. We are done waiting. Clean water for all right now. We are done waiting while Michiganders, our sisters and brothers, go without access to something as basic as health care. We are going to stand up Michicare in the state of Michigan. I am here today to make certain that Abdul is the next governor of the state of Michigan. Abdul El Sayed, who is the former governor candidate for the state of Michigan and also the former health director for the city of Detroit. Welcome, Abdul. Hey, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So you were running for governor in Michigan on a very progressive platform that um, included things like Medicare for All, and you lost to the more establishment Democrat in your primaries. So I wanted to ask you what lessons did you learn from that experience, and if you had any advice that you would like to give current progressive candidates that are also running against more establishment types? Well, uh, a couple of things. Now, number one, it's always critical to center the people that you want to serve. And that's something that we did throughout our campaign, and I'm really proud that our message was always about us and we, uh, rather than me or, or I, and um, center those people that you want to serve. Um, <clears throat> remember to reach out to, uh, to, to the folks who may not traditionally be the voters that everybody sort of relies on, what they call the triple prime voters, but, but don't leave anyone out. Every vote matters, and our ability <clears throat> to bring together a... Uh, a coalition of people who traditionally have felt locked out of their politics, I think, is critical. Um, you know, we, we, we were not successful uh, in the way that we wanted to be. I didn't win uh, the primary. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Number one, um, <clears throat> we're splitting votes with another uh, fake progressive, uh, a guy who is a multimillionaire, um, you know, has voted Republican and donated to uh, John McCain against uh, President Obama back in 2008, <laughs> take selfies with uh, people like Marco Rubio uh, in Iowa. And, um, he decided that uh, Progressive was the flavor of the month and decided that he wanted to spend $11 million of his own money uh, to, to, to run this race. And so it was all over TV starting <clears throat> six months before the actual primary. And, um, and you know, I split votes with him. It took uh, about 16% to my 33%. 
Um, you know, and if you, you sort of think about if him, he was not in the race, it would have been a very, very different race. But <clears throat> you look at where, where we were, uh, in this moment and, um, you know, and, and what, what Bernie was able to do in, in Michigan, um, we were, were actually quite a bit more successful in terms of reaching out to, uh, voters of color than, uh, than, than his campaign was. But, um, you know, this was a massive turnout year and I think, uh, running against, um, you know, a very capable female politician, uh, there was a real big push to elect women, and I think that's great. Um, but, you know, obviously, uh, my being a, a male um, uh, did not benefit me in this election. And then lastly, um, you know, I think that there are other things working against me. Uh, I am young. I'm 33. I, I hadn't held elected office before. And, um, you know, and, and I, I come from an ethnic and religious background that's uncommon. And so um, I think you take all those things together, and we were running an uphill battle. That being said, I don't regret a second of it. And um, I think there's a lot to learn from our race. We counted for about 70% of all the voter contact, and um, and I think we were able to really create a turnout that was twice uh, the last election uh, primary turnout. And I'm really proud of that. And so, you know, my main message to folks is 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 center the people that um, that you want to serve, uh, reach out and touch every voter if you can, <clears throat> and really really focus on on not just the outcome of the politics you want, but also the process of the politics where uh, you're reaching out to people and having a conversation. And then, you know, remember that, um, you know, losing is, is usually uh, a really great teacher. And so, you know, I'm not one who believes in moral victories. We lost our race. And, and um, you know, I'm, I'm obviously disappointed by that, but uh, there's a lot I learned and we were able to pull the more centrist candidate left uh, toward a $15 minimum wage, towards commitments on uh, universal water um, <clears throat> in ways that, uh, had we not been in the race, I don't think she would have moved. And and I think that's a win as well. Yeah, I think uh, you're right. Pulling the other candidate left is a huge win because we do gain by doing that. We gain ground. You mentioned uh, the fake progressive in the race, and we're seeing this across the board where it's the flavor of the month. So let's jump on the bandwagon. My question in regards to that is why do you think the voters are susceptible to that when the evidence is so strong that they're they're not supporting actual progressive policy. It seems to me that they, they should not be successful in splitting the votes, but yet here we are and that's what's happening. Yeah, well, I mean, he said all the right words, right? He was saying Medicare for all and he was talking about a $15 minimum wage and you know, he's talking about renewable energy. He just didn't believe those things. And so, you know, if you spend $10 million on TV telling people that you're the most progressive candidate uh, in, uh, in the race, um, and, you know, a candidate like me, who is not a millionaire and didn't take corporate money, just can't move my message the same way that he did. He won votes. I mean, ultimately, though, you know, the crazy thing about it is he ended up spending about $53 per vote. Um, so 160, yeah, 160,000 votes. He spent uh, he spent about $11 million to, to, to get those votes. And, you know, the people who um, ultimately voted for him tended to be folks who got more of their information on TV and, and might not have. Uh, engaged um, uh, the, the the sort of questioning of a candidate. You know, who is this person? What have they done with their their life? What are the decisions that they've made? Um, are they real in terms of what they believe? And you know, I don't begrudge any voter their vote. And um, you know, I understand why. And if you're seeing ad after ad after ad from the same person telling you that this person believes a certain set of things, you know, mo- most of us are trusting people when we take them at face value. But um, you know, but but it's unfortunate that uh, our system, because it's so motivated by money, allows these millionaires and billionaires to, in effect, 
say whatever they want to say because their money speaks for them. Um, and it is a huge flaw in our political system. It's entirely why uh, we really need to think about what campaign finance reform ought to look like. And, um, you know, and it's allowed people like Shree, uh to go and dupe 160,000 people uh, and in the end, you know, empower a candidate uh, who doesn't believe the things that he was purporting to believe um, because, you know, he split votes with me. And um, so, you know, it, it is what it is. I, uh, I'm, I'm the kind of person who... Um, who always looks forward and tries to learn from the experience that I just had. And, you know, I, I, when, when I was sort of thinking about running and when I decided to run, one of the last things I thought I would have to contend with is a, uh, a fake progressive, you know, wannabe lookalike who had uh, millions of dollars to spend on a vanity project. But, you know, it is what it is. And um, we as progressives, I think, have to do a much better job uh, of protecting um, what we believe from people like, like, like him uh, who profiteer, um, you know, through the, the, the pursuit of power uh, off of our message. Yeah, I agree with that. We've been seeing some of that here in California. And um, and I agree with you. You can't really begrudge a voter a vote because we are a democracy. And, and if uh, we want to win elections, we have to earn votes. I don't think you can bully somebody into voting. But at the same time, I would, I'm a little bit frustrated because I do see uh, the susceptibility to advertising that occurs in our electorate. And we are in such a state post Citizens United of, uh, you know, money is free speech sort of an argument that it, it does taint our elections in ways that seem really difficult to um, surmount. So it's, um, it's a problem. It's a huge problem. I mean, look, the central core problem of our democracy right now is the way that money has been able to permeate what was supposed to be a barrier between our politics and our economic system. And we've watched as uh, the rich and powerful, um, in, with particular focus on corporations, have been able to move policymakers uh, with the money that they use to, in effect, legally bribe them, um, and then change the policies such that it enables more of this money to keep moving into our political system. Um, you know, I had $550,000 of untraceable money spent against me. Um, and, uh, you know, and that's, that's, a, that's a low end, right, compared to uh, how much ultimately gets spent by business interests to protect their interests. And um, and if there is a central problem in our democracy right now, it's that. And we all have to get real wise about what it does and how it operates and the kinds of outcomes it creates in our political system, in our government. Um, and we have to decide that we are going to stand up against it. And <clears throat> that's why I'm so inspired by this moment in our progressive movement. And you know, even if candidates like me didn't win, uh, there are other candidates who did. Um, and uh, I know I know they're gonna they're gonna keep marching forward on the goal, but we're also we're also drawing in the process of running these kinds of races. We're also drawing attention to this problem because we were able to make corporate money and politics one of the marquee issues of the election, and um, and it is an issue now that is that is that is embedded in people's minds and will continue to play in their minds over time into the future because uh, that's what we got to do, right? And, and if you can't make up for uh, the the money in your message, then then you can't win or you can't move the discourse. And so we've got to have a powerful message, and that powerful message has to be unifying uh, around this issue so that we can address it into the future. Indeed. Um, 
I want to talk a little bit more about money and other aspects of our government, not just in political campaigns, but we're seeing also in regulatory capture at the FDA, at the FCC. We're seeing uh, with the definancing of our public university system, we're seeing more corporate money infiltrate mm-hmm. our academics. Um, so you're a Rhodes Scholar. You have a doctorate from Oxford University, and you're also, you also have an MD from Columbia. So I think you have uh, a particular voice in this area, and I'd love to hear your perspective on corporate money in both education and academic research. For example, I'm concerned with um, like the situation that happened at University of uh, Florida, where the Koch brothers donated money to the School of Economics, but one of the caveats was they would be able to approve whatever professors that were hired. In 2005, the Kochs granted $1.3 million to seven colleges and universities, including George Mason University, which received the majority of the money, $1.1 million. The following year, the Koch brothers expanded their reach to four new campuses while also providing additional funding to nearly all the schools they seeded the previous year. In 2007, the Kochs began ramping up their activities, funding 19 universities that year alone. This trend would pick up speed the following year, when the Kochs granted more funding to colleges and universities than every previous year combined. By 2009, Koch funding reached nearly $11.5 million spread across 70 campuses. Continuing their rapid expansion, Koch foundations more than doubled the number of campuses receiving funding in 2010. Over the next two years, this expansion continues, with the number of actively Koch-funded campuses surpassing 150 in 2011, and raising to 175 in 2012. By the close of 2013, Koch Foundations had funneled more than $68 million to 300-plus colleges and universities across the country over the course of the previous nine years. For more information, please visit www.uncokemycampus.org. I think we also see it in the research funding, for example, Bayer, um, Agricultural Division, Monsanto, they're researching all of their own stuff. They're placing folks at the FDA, um, also with pharmaceutical companies. So, you know, my concern is that uh, science, the system of science needs to be trusted. Scientists are human beings, so they also have the ability to be fallible. So it's important that we trust the purity of the system. And when we can no longer do that, there's all kinds of bad outcomes. Like, for example, I think the anti-vaccine movement sort of became birthed from this because the public that doesn't understand the science stopped trusting the system, so to speak. Um, So is this an area of concern for you? What is your perspective on that? So, yeah, absolutely. Look, I I started my career as a professor in public health at Columbia in New York, and um, and the degree to which you are watching systematic defunding uh, from government sources of really important research, and then watching schools of medicine and schools of public health and business schools, et cetera, move to try and find the funding that they need to persist, and then finding it in corporations, right, who who have moved money back channel to defund, right, that, that research in the first place. Hence, pushing the entire system into what is ultimately bought 
information. And then moving also to try and um, create veils that uh, ultimately obfuscate transparency, right? Um, because, you know, as a, as a reader of the scientific literature, you want to be able to know exactly who funded the research. And what will happen is money starts moving through a number of different funnel channels, right? So that, so that it's not Monsanto-funded research. It's funded by, you know, you name the nonprofit that has, uh, you know, a, a, a completely innocuous name that um, was ultimately funded by Monsanto, right? Um, and in and, and, and this system of corporate capture of our information systems, I think is is a, is a really really damaging thing, and I think the point that you made is a really is a good one, right? When the public has reason to stop trusting the 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 infrastructure for research and development of ideas, at some point they stop trusting the whole thing. It's all or nothing, right? Um, you know, and the, and the science around vaccines is rigorous and strong. I mean, the the, the entire anti-vaxxer movement, right? It, it sort of benefits from the ridiculous success of vaccines, right? We we don't we don't see people with polio very much. We don't see people with smallpox. We don't see people with measles. And so we look at the the very rare uh, adverse effects of uh, a vaccine <clears throat> that happen very very rarely and say, well, that's horrible. So we shouldn't vaccinate our kids. And you say, well, listen, if you knew what vaccine what what uh, what vaccine preventable diseases looked like. Right. And, 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 and we didn't have this sort of collective generational amnesia about what those diseases looked like. You would hurry to vaccinate your kid because those diseases uh, are devastating. Right. And so but the problem now is that um, is that we have gotten so used to having to ask twice about whether or not uh, there is some financial incentive behind whatever science is being pushed that we reject the whole thing. And. Um, and so it is a really, really dangerous thing. And, you know, I, I, I watched as a school of public health, uh, you know, took a professorship in the name of uh, a major pharmaceutical and, and just said, look, if you're going to have, you know, the, the, the Pfizer professor of pharmacoepidemiology, um, th that's a real problem. That's a really, really big problem. Um, and so we need to start leaning heavily uh, to make sure that research um, is government funded, that the funding is there. Um, and that transparency is uh, made very, very clear about who is pushing what kind of evidence generation. So <clears throat> it is a it is a very, very serious question. And um, uh, and I think I think this this question of the 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 corporate buyout of science and the corporate buyout of research um, is going to continue to to to, to really, really uh, challenge our ability to trust uh, what comes out of our major research institutions. Um, and so, you know, those of us who believe in the value of science and believe in the importance of uh, of purity in that science, we've got to make sure um, that we're calling this out, both the the moments where funding is getting cut and also where um, where corporations are starting to fill that in. And you know, the anti-vaccine movement has been frightful because vaccines are very sound science. This is not up for debate, yet here you have a good chunk of the population now saying all kinds of crazy things, and it sort of um, kind of turns into a bit of a hysteria. I think, um, you know, the, the broader and bigger picture challenge that we face right now is um, is the question of how we verify information generally, right? And this is not just an issue that's facing 
science and scientific research. It's an issue that's facing media. Um, you know, the advent of the idea of fake news, I think, is extremely dangerous. And um, I think we got we got lulled into a certain level of complacency um, uh, of trusting the information that came to us um, over time, both through the media and also through uh, through through means of scientific channels. And I think what's happened over time now is that you've had this sort of corporate capture um, uh, system where it's shaken trust in uh, in all of the information that we get. And then it's allowed people with nefarious intentions to stand up and say, well, it's all fake news, right? And you can only really trust my news. And that is the super dangerous thing, right? Is that, <clears throat> is that um, it's, it's, it's not even that, you know, there's this, this, this huge rush of, uh, of fake information. It's that um, people can use the advent of a relatively small amount of fake information <clears throat> to, then, to then discredit real information. Anytime it does not meet right pre pre assumed beliefs about how the world ought to be right and so um and so i I think there's just right now we we as a society need to stand up and uh really do some basic work around saying how do we verify what is truth um pushing that out there, those systems of verification, and then also <clears throat> and then also uh uh addressing um the the advent of the fake stuff. Or at least the corrupted stuff um, at its core, and um, and then educating people about how to be really good consumers of information, right? To be asking basic questions about, well, where did this information come from? Who has an incentive to give me this information? Um, do I believe the institutions uh, and their credibility around giving me information? Um, and and how do I verify those things over time? I 100% agree with you. Uh I think just to wax philosopher for a second, I think one of the worst um, unintended consequences of the postmodern movement was this idea that truth was subjective and that there were no universal truths, which is so mm -hmm. far from from reasonable in my opinion. And uh, there are universal truths in the world, not to go full Descartes, but yeah, truth matters. It's universal. It's objective. It's something we can verify. And um you're not entitled to your own opinion and to call it truth. That's just not how it works. Um, I do think on the flip side that uh, there's this, this idea that someone's antecedent bias or their point of view sort of feeds into the only stuff that they read. So if I already think that Bernie Sanders is a bad guy and socialism is wrong, I'm only going to read the news that tells me that and, and further verifies that opinion as opposed to being um, open to learning something. And uh, I am also concerned because Google and the way their algorithms are set up is they're designed to only feed you stuff based on your previous searches. So you kind of furthers this idea that you're in an echo chamber. So it's a mm -hmm. problem. And I really think you're right about um, our population needing to gain critical reasoning skills. And I think it's something we should be teaching in high school at the very least. Um, I think if people are more able to ascertain and ask questions about what they're being fed, that they're going to be a better voter, a better member of society, and that we would all benefit from uh, that. I think that's right. I think the, the, other, the other challenge with it is that <clears throat> social media has become such a huge way by which we attain information. And because of the nature of how we form social networks, we usually 
form them with people who are just like us. And what happens then is that we get their our information from them, and because of their <clears throat> social proximity to us, they're probably getting the same information that then reifies the biases that we came to in the first place. And so you have these very different um, experiences on a Facebook or a Twitter. And uh, and you know there are some some experiments that 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 looked at that right. Like what does um, a uh, uh, a young millennial leftist uh, Facebook look like versus an older um, rural uh, conservatives Facebook look like, and, and these are categorically different experiences and different information streams. Um, and then you know to, to to think about truth for a second, um, right? Even even beyond absolute truths, there's the question of like operational truth, the truth that actually matters to you in your day to day life. And um, and 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 the fact is is that um, is that the, the way we get information now, um, so much of the information that we get is actually not operational. It doesn't make a difference uh, in our day-to-day life. And all it really does is serve to create an image of the world for, uh, for ourselves that, um, that, that, that's not actually true to the world as we experience it, or even true to the world as it actually is. Um, there's this, this, this uh, great book by um, Neil Postman, uh, called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And it's a terrible title, but the book is actually quite insightful. Um, and what he talks about is um, that moment when truth or excuse me, information can travel faster than a person can. Right? For most of our existence as people, um, information only traveled as fast as somebody, right? Because because there was no telephony, right? There was no internet. And so you couldn't actually convey information to somebody far away Somebody literally had to bring that information to you in their mind and then share it with you. And so most of the information that you got in your day-to-day life was only really operational to your day-to-day experience because most of the time you didn't really interact with people who were far away. Um, And now we can get instantaneous information from almost anywhere in the world, um, which then gives us information that's not really relevant to our day-to-day life. uh, and how we think about that information and where it comes from, and frankly, our ability to even verify that information uh, has pretty dire implications for how we think about the world. So, you know, one example of this, there's this huge uh, right troll army on Twitter. And obviously, when they heard that a, uh, uh, an Egyptian-American, Muslim-American was running for governor of the state of Michigan, um, all of them were on high alert. And uh and so, you know, I'd get all of these, you know, pretty hateful tweets or, or Facebook uh, messages um, about about how I wanted to turn America into London. And I was like, wait, um, have you ever been to London? Right. Like because London, London is a relatively nice place. And I know that you all are afraid because you've heard a lot of things about how London has become this third world country because London has a Muslim mayor. I therefore declare Sadiq Khan to be elected as the new mayor of London. London is the greatest city in the world. I'm so proud of our city. I'm deeply humbled by the hope and trust you've placed in me today. I'm determined to lead the most transparent, engaged, an accessible administration London has ever seen. And to represent every single community and every single part of our city as mayor for all Londoners. And my promise to you is this, 
I promise you that I was, I'll always do everything in my power to make our city better. But if you've ever actually been to London, it's actually quite nice. And all of these things that you can't actually verify in the world that you've been told, right, have created this image of what London is to you that then has made it so that you fear the implications of somebody from my faith uh, being elected to office in, in the United States, right? And and so like you have this this whole sort of assumption that there are these like no go zone places in Europe, or that London has become this this you know capital um, when actually that's just not true. It's verifiably not true, right? But then people will have these images and these pictures, and they've had their messages reified by all the other people who they're connected to in their social network who think just like them who got these same images, right? That then make them honestly fearful of what's possible, what's going to happen in the world based on something they cannot verify, nor is true, right? And so like, we've just got the system now where we actually, unless we are able to teach people how to verify information and ask bigger questions about what's true and not true, and make sure that in real time information is being vetted, right? Um, and institutions are being, are being assessed constantly for whether or not they are true or not true, um, you know, what's going to continue to happen is, is this system because information just moves way faster than our ability to verify it. And, um, and it's a very dangerous thing in terms of how we think about the world. Indeed. Um, in, in fact, um, I can appreciate that my family is from Malmo, Sweden, and uh, the alt-right has persisted in saying there's no go zones there and it's just phony crap. It's totally not true. And the police chief for the area actually came out and made a video saying that there was no such thing as a no-go zone in Malmo, but they still persist on insisting that this is the case. A few years ago, part of the reorganization of the Swedish police force, the National Operations Department, NOAA, collated a report where local police identified over 50 vulnerable areas, which needed more attention by the police. And just over a year ago, 15 of them were identified as particularly vulnerable. This was later narrowed down to 14, as two of the areas were seen as one. And then another handful were deemed to be in the risk zone. Three of those areas can be found in Botkyrka, south of Stockholm, where Erik Åkerlund is the local police chief. To him, prioritising in this way was a sensible, mature thing to do. It's not that these areas are lost in any way. It's just that these 53 areas are vulnerable. And the answer to that report was, well, if we have 53 areas that we have to prioritize, let's find out which areas we have to prioritize first. And we found those 14 areas. And I think it's a good priority to make. All cities in Western Europe, you can find questions like we found in these 53 areas. So you have to prioritize. And uh, I think it's a mature thing to do. Erik Åkerlund was therefore much surprised when he read a newspaper column published in 2014 with the headline 55 No-Go Zones in Sweden. It was written by Per Gudmundsson in the daily newspaper Svenska Dagbladet. He reasoned that even if the police does not use the term, what better way is there to describe a place where, and here he was quoting the report, the public in several instances feel that it's the criminals who run the areas, and where the police cannot carry out their job. The term no-go zones quickly caught on, and it continues to do the rounds in social media today. But police chief Erik Åkerlund is not impressed. No, I think that's uh, 
for me, that's like, it's not a serious way to look on these areas. Um, me, for example, I've been working in areas like this for my whole police life. The underlying description of the vulnerable areas, however, as places where the police and rescue services have been attacked by the residents, where many people don't trust to come forward to the police as witnesses, and where there even are cases of parallel structures that in parts replace society's legal structures, those are all familiar problems to Erik Okelund. Yes, uh, yes it is. And that's why we have to like enforce and be here in both numbers and, and in good uh, activities. And that's why we have identified these 14 areas, because we really need to prioritize these areas. Because that hasn't been so very obvious before. But to talk about no-go zones in Sweden, I, well, for me, it's more like go-go. It's where we work. And uh, for me, I'm trying to like help making more police officers understand that this is where we need to work. And this is where every police officer should like to work because we are needed. And it's the people living here that, that want us to come and work in their areas. And we feel very welcome when we work in Bokruk and in Södertälje and in, in Järva as well here in Stockholm, for example. There's a big difference between this and the work in vulnerable areas in other parts of Europe, he says. When I have been to other countries and seen work in challenged areas, sometimes I have seen that some police authorities really look upon areas as no-go zones meaning that they only go there in certain sort of vehicles, special police officers, and they are not like doing outreach work. They are going there to react to something and they do it with a very enforced tactic. What we are talking about here is areas where we go to work with prevention. <clears throat> we are talking about areas where we are working 24-7. We are working in patrols. A police patrol can walk and talk in, in these areas. We can do uh, all sorts of police activity in the areas. But we also have the capacity to work with reaction and to work with organized crime in these areas without using task force like that. For Erik Åkerlund, the advantage of having defined some areas as particularly vulnerable is clear. It's meant more resources. There are twice as many police officers on the beat in Botkyrka compared to only a year and a half ago, and they can now prioritize also preventative work in a way that they never seemed to get around to before. I have been working in Södertälje, Rinkeby and here in Botkyrka during the times where we were not prioritizing that sense, and we always had to like get help from other areas. But now we can really see that a police officer that knows these areas, knows the people here, knows who to interact with and knows which youth are in, in risk, for example. We are getting more and more effective and we are getting more and more information so we really can see the result. And I feel very proud of, of these prioritations and I think it will make a big impact. Because they want to believe... Um, that their prejudice can't be justified by these means. And that's what they're mainly concerned about at the end of the day. It's unfortunate. Um, I wanted to ask you about your education investment plan. Um, I, you know, I really enjoyed looking at that because it's a very solid, well thought out plan. One of the things um, in addition to eliminate the eliminating the for-profit Betsy 
Devos type schools is you wanted to fund some of the other things that need to be done with uh, a state um, bank and a school infrastructure bank. Can you walk us through that program and why you think it's a viable solution that other uh, governors should probably look at? Yeah. Well, let me tell you where it came from. Uh, when I was health commissioner in the city of Detroit, um, the Detroit Federation of Teachers had to resort to a massive stickout uh, to open the doors to inspections uh, to draw attention to the kinds of schools that they were having to teach uh, our kids in. And um, you know, I remember seeing a, a first grade classroom in the middle of January where all the first graders are trying to color between the lines with gloves on their hands because the boilers in the buildings didn't work in Detroit. And, um, and you know, dead mice in the corner of classrooms that had been there for days, uh, gym floors buckling because of the amount of mold growing underneath them. And um, what we have in Michigan is a system of education funding that, uh, that basically does not allow state funds to uh, be invested in uh, operational issues like, like infrastructure. And so we wanted to create a solution where we could invest in the school infrastructure in uh, communities that weren't rich enough um, to be able to support local property taxes that would uh, pay for the quality of infrastructure that they need. And that's not just an urban problem. It's a, it's a rural problem as well. Um, and so we came up with the idea of an infrastructure bank. And this infrastructure bank uh, would um, allow us to leverage what districts had but didn't need, basically excess buildings, um, to invest in what they needed but didn't have, um, which is uh, capital to invest in the buildings that they actually use. And then um, we would fund it based on a statewide um, property tax. And you know, if you had a community, for example, that had a 15 mil uh, property tax approved, um, the first five mills would go into the statewide bank. And it basically allows us the system uh, to be able to redistribute, um, to invest in rural and urban communities uh, that have school districts and schools that, that just aren't worthy of our kids. And so this system, I think, is really important because what happens right now is so often uh, infrastructure, like the very classrooms that kids use, uh, are invested in locally, and all they end up doing is perpetuating the inequalities that we see geographically. And unless we are interested in equity, um, whereby we are investing uh, where, where, where investments are needed most, what we're going to continue to watch is this growing inequality in our system. Um, and so this was our efforts to try and address uh, that specific infrastructure issue. I think that's an important point, and um, I think it's something that a lot of folks don't think about. Uh, the problem being that property taxes are used to fund the school system, and if you live in an area that has a very dense population that's poor, there's less money per student than a wealthier area that has um, far fewer kids and far higher property taxes. So it's it's not distributed equally, and I'm a big believer that each child should have the same amount of money, follow them wherever they go to school, period. But of course, you know, that's a hard thing to get past because the pushback always comes from the wealthier neighborhoods that they don't think they should have to fund um, areas outside of their school district, which is unfortunate. But I thought that was a really viable plan. It was interesting. Um, I want to talk a second about Flint um, because the water there is still not up to par. And yet there are very few people in the media discussing it, discussing what happened. And I'm also relatively concerned about the fact that there are probably multiple 
uh, Flint situations just waiting to develop in other areas of not only Michigan, but the country. Um, so what is the current status with the Flint water situation? And um, what are your thoughts about trying to maybe uh, forego what happened in other areas? Flint reconnected to Detroit's water system and Michigan's governor, Rick Snyder, apologized. I know apologies won't make up for the mistakes that were made. Nothing will. But I take full responsibility to fix the problem so it will never happen again. Fifteen current or former state and city officials and staff were indicted as a result of contaminants in Flint's water. Like water, money has been pumped into Flint. Over half a billion dollars from the federal government, from the state, and from private donations. All of the city's lead pipes are being replaced. A showplace preschool was built. A registry was established to monitor the health of anyone affected. But then, this spring... The state of Michigan is reportedly ending distribution of free bottled water to residents of Flint. The state's justification? Multiple studies showing lead levels below the federal limit for more than two years, although using filters is still recommended. The science seems to say Flint water is safe. Many residents don't believe it. If you ask anybody in the city of Flint right now today and they tell you they trust the water, they're either A, paid, or delusional from it. Chlorine and all this stuff. Tony Palladino has no doubt why his family's hair is still falling out. The bacteria, the other chemicals that are in it. The Flint water crisis, loss of trust is its legacy. Never mind that it was corroding our insides. Never mind it was poisonous. Never mind it was killing us. Bishop Bernadelle Jefferson is one of three residents we talked to. The ones that we trusted to speak, have a voice for us, they lie. Yeah, look, we've got a, a very serious nationwide issue with the persistence of lead pipes uh, in the ground in uh, mostly major urban areas across the country. Um, you know, the, the challenge with Flint is uh, abiding, right? It's been over four years, and um, those lead pipes are still in the ground. And we have a responsibility to pull them out because until we get them out of the ground, people in Flint won't trust uh, what government tells them about, you know, average lead readings in their water. And um, I have personally been into people's homes. I've seen the water that comes out of their tap. And, um, you know, to, to see that while the government is saying that the that – the, um, the water is good and the economy is back and should be happy. Uh, that, that, that is that's what kills trust in government more than anything else. And, um, and so we've got a responsibility to really be doing this major infrastructure investment around water infrastructure. And Flint's not the only water-related issue in Michigan. I mean, we've got an issue right now uh, where 17,000 homes had their water shut off in Detroit. Um, and that's because they're being asked to pay upwards of, you know, $400 a month uh, for water, while we've allowed <clears throat> Nestle to pay $400 a year to bottle unlimited amounts of our water in Michigan. And so we've got a responsibility to stand up to these corporations and force them to pay their fair share if they want to sell our water for profit so that we can subsidize access to high-quality water for everybody in the state. And that was our water plan in, 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 uh, in, on the campaign, was that uh, we wanted to provide every family access to uh, the amount of water that they needed to drink, clean, cook, and bathe free of charge. Um, 
and then subsidize that by forcing folks like Nestle or anybody trying to bottle our water uh, to pay their fair share and also to raise the cost of water per ounce, each additional ounce after that basic amount. Um, and the problem with water, right, is not, it's not the water that costs a lot of money. It's the water infrastructure to purify it uh, and to get it into your pipes. And so a lot of that investment, right, from, from, from the Nestle's of the world and from, uh, from, from, from the cost would have to go in uh, to water purification and to getting those lead pipes out of the water. I mean, out of the ground. And so if we want to talk about challenges like Flint, what we really have to be talking about is uh, treating water like a human right and making sure that our policy dignifies that. I think water is a human right, and it's disturbing to hear that Nestle's doing that in Michigan. They've done it here in California as well. It's uh, remarkable that our government has uh, allowed this to happen. It's, it's very infuriating, but $400 a month for water in Detroit is outrageous. We don't even, but even worse, think... even ahead. worse now is they're trying to, they're trying to, um, to charge these things called drainage fees, oh which God. are basically fees uh, uh, that are proportional to the amount of concrete on your property. <laughs> um, because their argument is that they have to, they have to drain that water and purify it which is literally becomes a rain tax, right? <laughs> because, yeah. because basically you're charging people because of rainwater, um, which is insane. just absurd. It, yeah. It's absurd. And it's all just a scheme uh, to, to get people to pay more for something that ought to be a right in the first place. At this point, the taxpayers are subsidizing the corporations time they paid their fair share. It, you know, we've mm-hmm. seen this everywhere. It's driving me insane. So it, it's $400 a year. Oh Nestle God. Corporation pays $400 oh a God. year for unlimited amounts of water. That's insane. It's comical. Yeah. How does this happen? I just, I can't wrap my head around it. Um, I wanted to ask you about the Ambridge Line 5, which is a pipeline that gets very little attention. It's an old pipeline that was operational back in the early 1950s, and it runs under the Lake 4, under the Straits. Um, what are the some of the concerns here? I know there was a rupture in t- 2010 at Lake Kalamazoo, but I ca- would imagine that there's been other problems that are just not getting any attention. What are what are your thoughts on that? This 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 line uh, is the natural gas pipeline that runs uh, right between Lake Huron and Lake Michigan, and that pipeline is 15 years past when it was supposed to shut down, and yet um, they've done everything that they can to keep it open, and. The challenge is this, right? The Great Lakes are 20% of the world's fresh water. They're 85% of the water in North America. And if that pipeline were to burst, it would uh, potentially poison upwards of about 10% uh, of the world's fresh water in a matter of days. Um, and so we owe it to the world, right, to, to, to protect uh, this Great Lakes, these Great Lakes, and then also to shut down Line 5 because it is the most imminent threat for those lakes. And yet you have one Canadian corporation that's done everything it can to keep it open. And so uh, that is, I mean, it's one of these issues that is mission critical um, worldwide. And you're right, it doesn't just doesn't get that much attention because uh, because a lot of folks don't know about it and don't appreciate that uh, it's a problem that we have to prevent rather than we have to cure. And the problem that we have with the way we talk about these problems is that we're always so focused on uh, solving them after they've already happened rather than preventing them from happening in the first place. And um, with the case of Enbridge, right, you can imagine if it burst, it would be one of the biggest global stories. And yet 
we're in a position right now to prevent it from happening and there's just not any attention paid to it. Yeah, it should be shut down or the or at least repaired. I mean, if it's 15 years past when it was due, it's got to be in poor condition. This is just something that's waiting to be a huge disaster. That's right. That's right. And and that's the thing is that uh, it is it is well past when it was supposed to be shut down and um, 65 years old. Uh, and we had a couple of scares just this year. I mean, there was a there was a small tanker that that anchored its its uh, itself and happened to snag the line, and there was a small leak. I mean, these things just you know it, it's just a matter of time. Yeah, it is a matter of time. It's very worrisome. Uh, so you support the legalization of marijuana, as do I. Um, as an MD, what is your specific reasoning? There's a couple of things. I mean, look, the the, the first is that it's a civil rights issue. Um, African Americans in our country are 3.3 times as likely to be arrested for marijuana possession, despite no higher likelihood of use. And that creates huge implications uh, in terms of the, the social fabric um, of, uh, of communities and in terms of our, our, our school-to-prison pipeline that, that continues to persist because of the war on drugs. And I think uh, legalization is really, really important there. Second, you know, I, I have firsthand experience uh, watching people uh, with um, severe illnesses being treated by medical marijuana. And even though medical marijuana is legal in Michigan, its use is, is, is highly uh, limited because of the, the lack of, of, of legal recreational marijuana. It's still deeply stigmatized. And I think, um, I think being able to, to do something uh, about that stigma because we've legalized it recreationally would open the doors tremendously um, in terms of equipping people uh, who need this medication to treat their diseases, uh, to be able to actually use it. And then we also don't know how to use it very well simply because right now we can't really study it, right? And exactly, there's no research. And, and the reason there's no research is because it continues to be illegal for recreational use. Um, and then there's a lot that we can do uh, in terms of preventing real crimes, things like robbery or, or murder, um, which persist because of uh, all of the business that is uh, built around the illegal movement uh, and sales of, of marijuana. Um, and so if we want to do something about that, just make it legal. And then, um, you know, if you're concerned about purity and quality of, of product, uh, one of the most important things we can do is uh, regulate. And that only happens, again, when it's legal. Uh, there's the issue with, um, <laughs> with the fact that, um, that there's about $125 million in excise taxes that, uh, that we can put to good use in the state of Michigan uh, that are on the table because it remains illegal. And then, you know, you think about all the policing that goes into, um, into marijuana, right? There's, there's a lot that we could be focused on um, around making sure that it doesn't get into uh, the hands of young people or uh, that people are not using it and also operating, having machinery or, or driving, um, where we could really be focusing on the danger, the actual dangers uh, of marijuana rather than <clears throat> the perceived dangers uh, based on an outdated system of thinking about, you know, what ought to be uh, allowed or not allowed. And so for all those reasons, you know, I believe in legalization. I'm probably one of the few people who's a, who's a big advocate of legalizing has never smoked marijuana. Um, it's just a personal choice of mine. Um, but, uh, but the fact of the matter is, from a public policy standpoint, legalizing it is the right thing to do. Funny thing is, is I uh, broke my toe a couple months ago and I was giving, yeah, it hurt really bad, I have to say, but I was given this, um, 
it was whatever's in the marijuana that is good for pain, but it doesn't get you high. They have these pills now. I don't remember mm-hmm. what it's called off the brain now, but it worked fabulously. It was so much better than Advil. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I would totally take it again. <laughs> yeah. So I want to talk about uh, auto premiums in the state of Michigan. Uh, so auto, the auto premiums in Michigan are really high compared to the rest of the country. And insurance is regulated on the state level through the insurance commissioner. So there are variants, variant levels of protections by a state. California has a very robust um, insurance regulation, and Michigan doesn't. So part of the problem, I think, is even though that redlining isn't supposed to exist, it does exist in Michigan. Um, and I think the insurance lobby has spent a lot of money in the state, and they deny that this is the case. But clearly something needs to be done here. So what is the problem, do you think, in the state and why this is the case? Is it the redlining? Is it something else? Do you think the state needs to have stronger um, regulation? What are your thoughts? Yeah. Well, at CORE, uh, we're one of two states that allows auto insurance to double as health insurance. So if somebody's injured in an auto accident, um, their auto insurance can be billed for healthcare costs. And not only are they billed for healthcare costs at the basic level that health insurance might be billed, but they're billed on average three to 10 times higher uh, in terms of the overall cost. It's a scam. So the core problem is that we don't have universal health coverage. And the trial lawyers and the doctors and, and the auto insurers who all profiteer off the system keep saying, well, you're going to take coverage away from people who need it. Wouldn't that be horrible? And my point is, well, why don't we just pass universal health care and then we can let auto insurance go back to being auto insurance? Um, yep. In most state, property casualty insurance is a different line than health insurance. You need a different license. It's regulated differently under different laws. So you're saying in Michigan there's a conflation of these things, which is yep. – which is how, Which is the reason why. Okay. I mean – it, it, it is a no-fault insurance package that was passed um, that ultimately led to this. And the, and the idea was, you know, was, was the sense that, well, if people, if people are getting, uh, getting injured in auto accidents, shouldn't we be able to support them? And, and that's like a really noble idea. But, but the problem with it now is that it's just been profiteered on to a degree where you know, the doctors and hospitals and the trial lawyers have just figured out uh, how to milk the system for everything it's worth. Um, and and then beyond that, right, we have a concentrated um, uh, level of, of inequity because of the system of redlining that basically allows auto insurers to make decisions about how much you pay for auto insurance based on uh, where you live, your credit score, your education level, whether or not you're married, what you do for work. Um, and it leaves people in urban communities largely paying fivefold the national average in auto insurance. And um, and so about 50% of Detroiters, for example, don't have auto insurance at all. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're not driving. They're just doing what they call driving dirty, meaning that they're, they're illegally driving without auto insurance. But because it's so expensive, they can't afford it. And, and what happens now is that you have this thing called adverse selection in the system where, you know, 50% of people don't, don't have auto insurance, but the people who do have auto insurance are now asked to cover the cost for everybody. Right. And so their rates keep going up. So more people drop out of the system. So that means the rates go up for everybody else who's still in the system and you keep rinse and repeating the cycle. Um, and and so this redlining basically means that 
uh, that in urban communities, I'll just tell you, when I moved from Detroit to, to uh, a suburb, we just had a baby about eight months ago, and so we moved in with my in-laws. Um, and, uh, and our auto insurance went down about $3,000. Um, and I drove a Ford Focus, right? I, it's not that I drive a, a fancy car or anything. Uh, and my wife drives a Subaru. So like our, our auto insurance just went way down just because we'd moved about, about, uh, about 40 minutes out. And the, the irony of the thing is when we lived in the city, we probably didn't drive as much as we do now that we live in the burbs and, and yet, and yet we're paying $3,000 less. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's absurd. It's astronomical for people and, uh, we need to do something about it. And, and our plan was obviously pass universal health coverage. That way you let auto insurance go back to being auto insurance. You end the redlining in the system so that it stabilizes costs across the state and then, uh, create a truth and insurance commission that holds the insurance, uh, industry accountable, similar to the insurance commissioner in California. And then lastly, uh, you put regulations on, um, how much doctors and hospitals can charge auto insurance in the in the interval between when you uh, when you start the regulation and when you uh, pass universal health coverage and reduce the exploitation by lawyers in the system, uh, you know, who ambulance chase to no end because they know that they can charge auto insurance uh, for their um, for their legal fees. So that's that's just a crazy system. If you deducted my insurance, I live in Los Angeles, close to downtown LA. So I'm in a very urban area. If you reduced my premium by three thousand dollars, the insurance company would be paying me. Just to give you an idea, <laughs> that is absolutely out outrageous. I can't even wrap my head around that. It sounds also like the insurance commissioner is just rubber stamping whatever rates the insurance company uh, gives them without Yeah, there's back. no power in the system. Exactly. There's no power um, in, in the regulatory system right now. That's just insane. And you're right about the adverse selection. And you would think the insurance companies would wake up to the fact that, that they're, they're distorting the risk pool by charging such high premiums in these areas. Nobody's going to buy the insurance. It's crazy. Wow. To them, they say, well, we're going to make more money that way anyway, so it's okay. Mm. Rather it's... than right, realizing that you know, insurance has to be somewhat of a public good, Absolutely. Um, especially if, if it's required. Mm -hmm. Indeed. So Mish Care is your plan. Let's talk about your universal health care plan for a second. Um, I see now why you want to tie it in with the auto insurance premiums. I wasn't aware that that was going on. That's, that's interesting. So walk us through the details of your plan, because I'm curious to know if this is something that you might want to try to still get done on the state level. Um, in California, we're trying to pass single payer here on the state level. And I think um, in the big picture, it might be how we get universal coverage in the country if we go state by state, because I just don't see the will to pass it on the federal level, although I see that changing and I, I see the issue picking up steam. I'm not sure that we're quite there yet, but I do think we can be successful in some of the states. So um, walk us through your plan and let me know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, so Michigan is a single-payer system for the state of Michigan. And it would cover every Michigander between the ages of zero and 65 when, when they became eligible for Medicare. And um, it would provide every Michigander access to all the health coverage that they would need, no premiums, no copays, no deductibles. And the way we would pay for it is uh, in two ways. The first is a uh, business side gross receipts tax. Um, that only kicks in after $2 million of gross receipts, meaning businesses would be exempt from having to pay a dime. Um, 
uh, and then it's a 2% tax, and it jumps to 2.25% um, for businesses with more than 50 employees. Um, to give you a sense of how much money uh, the, the business side would save, we estimated that a 40,000-person business, something like a GM, end up saving about $20 million a year because they no longer have to pay for health care for their employees, um, and instead they're just paying a 2.25% uh, gross receipts tax. And then um, there would be a progressive payroll tax um, that comes out of your payroll monthly, similar to uh, to what you pay for you know employer health care right now. Um, and um, it's a progressive tax, and so it would start at about 0.75% um, at uh, the lowest quintile and jump to 3.75% at the highest quintile uh, with increases um, linearly from, 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 from the bottom quintile to the top. Um, ultimately, we estimated that a family of three earning about $50,000 a year um, which is the median income in, in Michigan would save about $5,000 every year on healthcare related costs. Um, that's 10% of their income. Um, and so everybody saves, individuals save, uh, businesses save, um, and everybody gets healthcare. And you don't have to worry about the 600,000 Michiganders in, in, in the current system who don't have healthcare because they're covered just like the CEO of that 40,000 person corporation. Um, uh, and you don't have to worry about, about costs at, at the point of service. Now, we talked about the insurance, um, and the, the auto insurance uh, uh, trade-off as well, right? Because the, the cost of auto insurance will be able to go down tremendously. But then also for seniors, um, because we'd be negotiating for the 10 million people in our state, we could bring down the cost of prescription drugs tremendously. And that would be added savings for our seniors as well, even though they'd be covered by Medicare. I think that's an important point because in part of the Part D uh, bill when it was added to Medicare was that the government couldn't negotiate with the pharmaceutical companies on price. So the government, which should be able to negotiate and could very legitimately get lower um, costs, it, it, the legislation was bought and paid for. So they get to dictate the price, the government pays them, and it's a racket. So I think that's a great idea. Yep. And that's the, that is the hope, right? Is that, is that everybody saves, we all win. Um, and we're doing this because, you know, frankly, we need healthcare and healthcare costs too much, even if you have it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so, you know, being able to do this at the state level, a lot of folks will say, well, it's impossible. Uh, it's impossible to do this at the, at the state, at the state level. We'd, we'd want to be doing this at the federal level. Well, you know, a lot of folks, if, if you just look at our history, um, a lot of folks look to Canada, and right. uh, Saskatchewan, uh, as a province, was the first to actually enact a single payer system in Canada. And then, uh, province by province, they picked it up, and then soon mm-hmm. enough, it became federal policy. Um, and so, leadership at the state level, I actually think, is the right way to go. Yeah, I agree. I think it's how we're going to get it done. So, hopefully, we get our bill here in California passed this year. Fingers crossed. Um, I wanted to talk about gerrymandering in the state of Michigan. Uh, do you think race has played a factor in the state level gerrymandering that's occurred? No doubt. Um, no doubt. I mean, the way that uh, that our uh, electorate is chopped and dissected um, has everything to do with grouping certain groups of people together. Michigan is one of the most segregated uh, states in the country, um, and. Uh, a lot of that segregation has played right into the hands of the gerrymanders. Um, we've got a we've got a ballot proposal that I'm really excited to vote on in November um, that would um, that would push us to 
independent, nonpartisan redistricting. And I think that would be huge for our electorate and huge for um, our politics. And uh, and so I'm really, really proud of you know the, the, the many, many Michiganders who did the work to get this on the ballot. And uh, I look forward to voting for it um, in uh, in November. I think it's it would be helpful. I know uh, one of the things that was very concerning for me was when the DNC walked away from funding uh, the state parties was that it would affect the House of Representatives as well, because that's gerrymandered on the state level. And we lost so many seats in that midterm that it changed, uh, was all sort of related. Um, I think in uh, hindsight is 2020, of course, but I was concerned about it then. And it seems now that that's come to pass, it's something we really have to fix. And I'm a strong believer that folks coalesce around ideas. That's the thing that they coalesce around, not necessarily these other items. So, Mm -hmm. um, I'm glad that you guys are tackling that. So you think the, um, transformational brownfield plan should be repealed. Um, what are your reasons for this? Tell us a little bit about the plan. It's a development plan and um, what you think is wrong with it. Well, the, the challenge right now is that, um, you know, it, it is basically uh, taxpayer subsidies for huge developers uh, to build development that they then own uh, with very little recourse in terms of what, the taxpayers recoup. And, and, and that's the problem with it. Um, and, you know, we, we've got to be clear about the relationship between government and and private developers. And uh, for too long in Michigan, that system has just been broken. And Michigan is the second biggest subsidizer of uh, corporations in the country, both per capita and in absolute dollars. And, um, and that system has robbed us of the ability to be investing in basic things like people and the places that people live in. Um, and transformational brownfields, while I think it's really important to re- redevelop a lot of these sites, I don't think this system by which we, we, we offer these gigantic tax breaks um, and subsidies to developers who already have the means uh, to move a project forward, I, I don't think that that's the way we need to, 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 to be thinking about it. And I um, I would rather uh, replace it with a plan that allows a certain level of profit share uh, between taxpayers who are investing and the developers who are uh, doing the development. Um, and without that sort of ability to profit share, I just don't think that that investment is, is meaningful and worthwhile. Um, we had, for example, here in California, we had a bill called Costa Hawkins that was passed at the state level that pretty much overturned the uh, local municipalities' ability to affect rent control laws. And what happened was they made all of these deals with real estate development to come into downtown LA and some other areas. And um, the older apartment buildings that were protected, I think it's 1969 is the cutoff year. A lot of the developers tore the buildings down and redeveloped them simply to get away from the rent control laws. So we saw this Mm -hmm. insane increase in rents in just about every area. And now we have a a huge problem with affordable housing. And it was all done by Democrats in the name of development. And so I, um, I agree with you. I think there's a way to go about development that makes sense and a way to go about it that just um, forces more income inequality. And we have to be careful of that. Not all development is a good thing. That's exactly right. I mean, and that's the thing is that, you know, is it done equitably and is the profit um, shared by 
the taxpayers who are footing most of the bill, mm-hmm. or is this just a pass through between government funds, taxpayer dollars, uh, to the coffers of private developers? And <clears throat> I'll always be on the side of making sure that the taxpayer wins and um, and that people uh, get the fair share of what they've invested in, uh, because without that, um, you know, we've seen too much of this transfer. Mm-hmm. Um, from from poor to rich in our society, we've got to start doing something about that. Oh, I agree. The plutonomy has done done nothing but extract wealth from everybody else now for thirty years, and it's we've sort of reached a point where it's no longer tenable. I don't see how it continues. Uh, so at this point, even the plutonomy sheep should be concerned. If there's nobody left for them to sell widgets to, what happens to them? It's just a total collapse of the system. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about criminal justice reform for a, a moment. Um, now, Michigan still has private prisons, yes? So thankfully, Michigan does not have private prisons. Okay. Um, Michigan has private prison contracts. Uh, so there are contractors who operate in the prisons that are private, um, but, but does, not have, does not have private prisons. Okay, so you're in a transitional stage. We actually got rid of all of our, thankfully, got rid of our private prisons here in California. Um, And I know a lot of the states are are looking to end that system. Obviously, it's been very detrimental. Um, What issues do you still have with mass incarceration in Michigan? Well, look, I mean, we we incarcerate uh, 11% higher than the national average. And um, that has everything to do with sentencing uh, policies and um, and the, the the way we think about uh, parole and recidivism, and also how we think about um, getting people out of jail, uh, and and then lastly also policing. And in particular, though, the two that I want to focus on are the sentencing uh, laws, both a a um, a policy around habitual offenders and uh, the fact that there is sort of a max penalty given if somebody is convicted for a third time even if it's a nonviolent offense. And so our reform was we wanted only to count violent offenses, not nonviolent offenses. Um, Truth in sentencing uh, has ultimately been used to throw the book at uh, young people by, you know, often aggressive prosecutors who are uh, going after a political win. And um, so that that policy needs to be reformed. Um, And then, you know, when we think about uh, what we do after somebody's been incarcerated, uh, we've got to ban the box in Michigan. And then we've also got to stand up uh, to make sure that the way we think about parole is about making sure, or uh, the way we think about a parole officer um, uh, is about helping somebody uh, to stay out of jail rather than finding ways to put them back in. Um, and um, and so we proposed a uh, a program um, where we wanted to build a uh, an office specifically around reentry. Um, and to make sure that the investments that we would be making in a person's education, um, that those could bear out for that person over the long term after they've gotten out of jail because we've banned the box and because uh, we're connecting them to high-quality jobs uh, that they have been credited for and, and capable of doing uh, on the back end. Do you have a problem with the money bail system? Uh, we have oh, yeah. a problem here in California where it's really skewed to the rich folk. If you're too poor to post va- bail, you languish in jail waiting your trial date, and that can yeah. sometimes take months. We can't allow poverty to continue to be criminalized, and mm-hmm. um, and cash bail does exactly that. And so we wanted to ban cash bail uh, that we can we can advocate for that because it is so pernicious on on the poor, um, and it forces people into positions where they're in effect in debtors' prison. 
uh, and it's wrong. And, you know, in 21st century America, the idea that we're criminalizing poverty still in this way uh, is absurd. What does the future hold for you? Are you looking to run for office again? Is that something that you would consider, especially now that you have name recognition? Look, for me, um, my path has always been about following my focus on building a more just, a more equitable, a more sustainable world. Um, I got into medicine because I wanted to learn how to heal uh, and wanted to do something about the deep inequities that I saw between my home in the suburbs of Detroit, uh, traveling to Egypt where my father um, immigrated from uh, every, every summer, and also the deep inequities that I saw between my suburban home and in Detroit. And I travel either eight hours or 20 minutes and travel the same 10-year difference in life mm-hmm. expectancy. And um, went into public health when I realized that ultimately it was our politics that created the circumstances within which people suffered. And um, the air and water we breathe, the kinds of jobs that people have access to, the schools that their kids go to, those are the things that ultimately pattern uh, access to a healthy life. Um, and then went into politics when I realized um, that, that the work of setting an agenda that really dignified those things, um, that one had to to follow a path of a politics that broke the corporate chokehold um, on the decisions that were made and that really centered uh, people and their well-being uh, into the conversations that we had in government. And I want to continue following that path. I don't know exactly what's next for me. I, I do see a, uh, a career in public service uh, in the future. Um, for now, uh, I'll find another opportunity to keep serving, and, um, and I hope that uh, I can keep moving the conversation forward, both in Michigan and uh, nationally. Well, I hope so, Abdul, because you're a national treasure. Your uh, plans were so well thought out um, at the candidate level. You rarely see that. So I hope you continue to um, stay in public service and run for office again. In the meantime, if folks wanted to follow you on Twitter, what is your Twitter handle? It's Abdul El Sayed. A, B like boy, D like dolphin, U, L, E like Eddie, L, S like Sam, A, Y, E like Eddie, D like dolphin, Abdul El Sayed. 